Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3, where we'll be looking today at those verses that Preston just read to us, verses 22 through 30. As a church, we've been walking through the first three chapters of John since the first Sunday of September, and these early introductory chapters as the author, the apostle John, is introducing the life of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus to us. It's, it's almost when we read these early chapters as if we're experiencing a sunrise happen over the whole earth. So in the prologue, the first part of chapter one, it's like the light is just dawning, just beginning to shine. And then that chapter goes on and then into chapter two at a wedding that Jesus attends. It's like the light is beginning to stretch farther. The, the sky is getting a little brighter. And then Jesus goes into a temple and turns the tables over. And then in the first part of chapter three, he's talking to Nicodemus. And by this point in the book of John now, by the middle of chapter three, the sun is up. And he is shining brightly for all to see, unobstructed. Jesus is now unobstructed in the Gospel of John. He is clear as day. If you've been tracking with us through this series, or if you've just read the Gospel of John, you would know that by this point, we arrive today at verse 22, by this point, Jesus, by his own admission, has been crystal clear about why he came, about what he came to accomplish. And he's been crystal clear that he demands new birth. So the light of Jesus has been shining clear as day, and so far in this chapter, the light has been shining upon Nicodemus. So now we turn to verse 22, and that conversation has wrapped up, and the author of this book, John the Apostle, tells us what happens next. So look with me at verse 22. The author tells us that after this, meaning after this conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and Jesus remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. And now here's a little editor's note from our author, verse 24, <clears throat> for John the Baptist had not yet been put in prison. So these verses, 22, 23, 24, are background to what will happen today. And this background tells us that at this point and continuing to today, right now, the work of Jesus had begun. The new day of Christ had dawned upon the earth. That day is still today. The day of Christ had begun and the day of Christ continues. And so this background is important, not just for this text, but for us as well, because it helps us see that even as that's true, even as it's true that the light of Christ shines, even as it's true, which it is true, that the new day of Christ has dawned upon the earth, that light can be diminished. The light of Christ, which shines brightly, the day of Christ, which has dawned, can be diminished. And often that light can be diminished by people who should have eyes to see it. The sun can be shining bright as day outside like it is right now, but you can have your curtains drawn and you can be in the dark. And we see that dynamic play out now of the diminishing of the light of Christ 
And what happens as we turn to verses 25 through 27? Look with me there, 25. Now, a discussion arose. (laughs) If you've ever been around a church, you'd know what that's code for. Uh, A discussion arose. I bet it did. Uh, I like how the New Living Translation puts it. A debate broke out between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John the Baptist and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you, meaning Jesus, across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. Or in the NLT, everybody is going to him instead of coming to us. So let me draw our attention quickly to two tragic effects of the diminishing of the light of Jesus that we see in our text, that we see all around us. It's not hard to find examples of this and that because we're all sinners, we often see in our own hearts. And the first effect of the diminishing of the light of Jesus is that we're blind to his supremacy. Blind to his supremacy. The disciples of John the Baptist take what is a fair question from a Jew. It's a singular person. One person comes in with a fair question about the kind of baptism Jesus was performing. It's a softball question. The disciples of John the Baptist could have used it to knock this out of the park. The question has to do with Jesus' baptism. The Jew can tell that it's a different kind of baptism. What the disciples of John the Baptist could have said was, well, If you want to know why that baptism is superior to John the Baptist's baptism, it's because the baptizer is superior. It's it's there for them. The softball is there, and yet they they miss it. They see Jesus' baptism as a competitor, not uh, as superior. Jesus as competitor instead of Jesus as superior. When you don't see Jesus as supreme, you tend to see him as a problem. When you don't see Jesus as someone to receive, you tend to see him as someone you need to manage. John the Baptist's disciples saw Jesus in this way. They saw him as a problem they had to manage for their boss. And it stemmed from their blindness to his supremacy. Now, as I said, all of us in this room don't need to look far to find examples of this in the world, in our own hearts, and sadly, oftentimes in the church. I mentioned to you a few weeks ago that in the 1970s, my dad was a seminarian at Virginia Theological Seminary, VTS, down the road. And in that particular decade, the Episcopal Church was revising its prayer book. Very controversial. And after a morning service one day, an elderly woman came up to him after the service, and she said, and I'm not making this up, she said, if Jesus could see What they've done to his prayer book, he'd roll over in his grave. (laughs) Yeah, wow, that's the right answer. The light of Jesus is diminished when we elevate anything, any issue over him. 
We see it here in verse 25, and we see it if we're honest with ourselves in our own hearts too. And one effect is that we're blind to his supremacy. Another effect here we see in verse 26 as we go on is that we're hostile to his word. We can be hostile to the word of God. The disciples here, John the Baptist's disciples, had heard the word of Christ clearly preached to them from John the Baptist himself, straight from the source. And they admit this. They admit that they've heard his sermons. They bought his cassette tapes. They admit this in verse 26. Remember what cassette tapes were, anybody in the room today? (laughs) Ancient artifact. Go to a museum. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. They had heard his word, but the very next thing they admit is, look, he's baptizing, and all who are going, all are going to him. They admit that they had not received the word. Heard the word, hadn't received the word. And worse than just not receiving it, they were hostile to it. We see this, we know this, I can say this, because towards the end of verse 26, in the meaning of the word all, they say to John the Baptist, all are going to him. That's an angry word in the original. It's a jealous word. It's a hostile word. All are going to him. We need to beware of drawing the blinds to the light of Jesus by becoming hostile to his word. So let me ask you, where does God's word make you mad? What teachings of God's word make you a little angry? That's an area where you need to allow the Holy Spirit to let the light shine through, lest we become hostile to God's word. So what we see next in our text, as we go on, is so helpful and encouraging and instructive to us because John the Baptist responds to this blindness to Jesus' supremacy. He responds to this hostility to his word, to this diminishing of the light of Jesus, simply by exalting the light of Jesus. If you have your Bibles open to John chapter 3, you'll see this chapter heading that our editors have added just before verse 22. It says this, John the Baptist, what? Exalts Christ. How do you water a plant that needs water by giving it what? Water. These aren't trick questions. Don't worry. There's no trick question here. How do you feed a people who are hungry by giving them food? So how do you serve and love a people who are thirsty for Jesus, hungry for Jesus by giving them an exalted Jesus? That's what John the Baptist does here. He exalts Christ. Starting in verse 27, we begin to see the effects of this. And listen, these effects, I'm going to say, might sound simple, because they are. But so are the effects of watering a plant. When you come home after a trip and you've forgotten to have someone water your plants, and you water the plant, you're not looking for complicated results. 
You're looking for simple yet life-giving results. So look with me at the simple but life-giving results of exalting Christ. And the first is that we're reminded of his grace. We see this in verse 27, simply how John the Baptist answers them. We're reminded of God's grace in everything. It's all grace, everything. Verse 27, John the Baptist answered, a person cannot receive Underline this, even one thing, unless it is given him from heaven. Look at that, how utterly confident he is in the gracious provision of God, not only in salvation, the big stuff, but also in everything, the little stuff, and everything. This is the lens through which he sees the world. This is Grace-saturated thinking. God made the world through the word of Jesus. God illuminates the world through the light of Jesus. God loves the world by giving the gift of Jesus. God offers salvation to the world through new birth in Jesus. So John the Baptist sees everything as a gift of grace given to him through Christ. So John the Baptist's disciples look at Jesus and his light is diminished. The the curtains are drawn and they're confused by him. John the Baptist looks at Jesus and he's simply reminded of God's grace. Then he goes on exalting Jesus. He can't help himself here in verse 28. And notice this, what happens here is when we do this, we're Now, confident in our gospel identity. We've heard some of this from John the Baptist before. He did some of this in a previous sermon, but he's realizing that his disciples weren't taking notes, and so he repeats himself a bit. He says here in verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness. You heard this sermon that said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He reminds his disciples of the word He points them back to the word about Christ. And he also reminds them of his identity, and his identity is oriented completely around the gospel. We see this in verse 28. It's like the rays of light that extend from Jesus have given John just full confidence in who he is on the one hand and who he is not on the other hand. We've seen this in previous weeks. He says, I am not the Christ. Clearly, I'm not the Christ. I have been sent before him to point to Christ, and you yourselves bear me witness, he says. So John the Baptist here testifies to the power of the gospel that we've heard about now in this gospel that gives us new birth. And the power of this gospel that gives us new birth also gives us a new identity. When we're saved, we're made to be forever alive, united with Christ, and That means that we can sum up our identity quite simply. I am not Jesus. I point to Jesus. That's what exalting the light of Jesus enables in all of us. This is is how you water the plant of your soul. The overflow of this then. It's like a river of Christ exaltation flowing through John the Baptist. And now an overflow of this is that we're made more and more 
satisfied just to know him. We see this here in how John the Baptist talks, uses an illustration of being the best man in a wedding, of being joined to Christ, being best friends with Christ. He's just satisfied to know Christ. To really know Jesus, and this is true for all of us, it can be true for all of us, to really know Jesus means that you have a real source of joy that lives inside of you. You have a real source of joy that is, is not from you, but from outside of you that comes into you. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is proof of God's love. We learned that last week. So even if difficult things are ahead for us, this is John the Baptist talking, and thanks to John, the author's editorial note in verse 24, we know he's headed for hardship. We know he's headed for prison. He's headed for death. And yet even someone like John the Baptist with hardship in his story can be satisfied to simply know Jesus. Look at verse 29. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, meaning Jesus has made me his own. Jesus has made you and me his own, like his bride, like his very own bride. So he says, the friend of the bridegroom now, or the best man, stands and hears him and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice, meaning not only has Jesus made me his own like his bride, but he's also made me like his best friend. Such joy in unity of, of relationship with Jesus. Therefore, therefore, he says, this joy of mine is now adequate. So you say, this joy of mine is now what? Complete. Meaning for him, the light of Jesus is not just an external light that shines upon me or that shines upon the world. The light of Jesus shines within my soul. I got to quote a hymn now. I got to do it. <laughs> Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, what? It is well. It is well with my soul. And why is that exactly? Why can I say it is well with my soul? Earlier on in that song, it says why. Because Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Christians aren't supposed to just walk through this world dealing with hardship and trial and sickness and just say, well, it is well. Not at all. Christians walk through this world and face trial and hardship and sickness, and we know because Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has joined me to himself and has made me like his bride and has filled me with his spirit because that's true. It is well with my soul. Think of Psalm 23 that Christians go to all the time during difficult times. And what's the line that we always cling to? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Because he's mine and I am his. So this river of Christ exaltation is flowing 
And now we come to its final effect in our text. When the light of Jesus is exalted upon us and within us, praise God, we're zealous for his glory. Listen to what John the Baptist says here in verse 30. And keep in mind, he's the last of the prophets. And he is a man who Jesus described in Matthew 11, 11 as the greatest man who ever lived. And what's the greatest man who ever lived say about Jesus? The last words recorded of John the Baptist in this gospel are, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now just notice here, if you have a pencil or a pen or a marker or something, even if it's a church Bible, circle that word must. He must increase. I must decrease. So John isn't saying this out of just a recognition of what will happen. He's not just reading the room and saying, well, he is Jesus after all. So it's inevitable that he will increase. Therefore, it's inevitable that I will decrease. I'm realistic. I'm, I'm reading my poll numbers. He doesn't say this out of a recognition of what has happened. Well, attendance at Jesus' baptism has increased. Therefore, attendance at my baptisms has decreased. John is so zealous for the glory of Jesus that he insists that this must happen. This must happen. He must increase. I must decrease. So now, as we've come to this verse here at the end, here's how we could go so wrong with this. And here's how I could go wrong preaching this, trying to apply this. I could say something like this. Now, Christians... John the Baptist decreased, so Jesus could increase. So you and I need to do a better job at decreasing this week so that Jesus can be increasing. I could leave you with this. You need to be more humble. You need to be less self-centered. Think of some ways or some situations or some social media posts where you're always tempted to make a big deal out of you. And your homework this week, you guys, is to go out there and try harder to make less of a big deal out of you. God bless you. But here's the other way we could look at this. I could preach this. It's the gospel way, which first says there's some bad news here, which is this. On your own, on my own, we actually can't help but increase ourselves because we're sinners. Our flesh, our sinful flesh is constantly fighting to increase itself. We feel it. That's the bad news. But the good news that the gospel declares is that because you're born again, Jesus has done for you what you could not do for yourself. And because you're born again by water and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit now does within you what you cannot do for yourself. You and I can't, no matter how hard we try, 
We can't try hard enough to make ourselves zealous for the glory of Jesus because the reflex of our flesh is to diminish Christ. The reflex of our flesh is to be hostile to his word and to make ourselves supreme, to say, I must increase. Everything else, everyone else, Jesus himself must decrease. But in Christ, here's the good news again, you're born again, and you're given from within you the reflexes of the Spirit of Christ. And the Spirit of Christ, who is Christ in you, will insist upon exalting Christ. Now, there will be a battle for sure, and all of us, until the day we die, between our flesh exalting flesh and the Christ exalting spirit. But the good news is the Christ exalting Holy Spirit is stronger than our flesh glorifying flesh. And the spirit exalts Christ to us and within us. You might have walked into this room this morning ready to worship you might have walked into this room this morning ready to kill somebody. Whatever you walked into this room like this morning, the Spirit of Christ is within you, eager, ready, always to exalt Christ. And this is good news for self-glorification addicts like you and me. <laughs> One of my favorite preachers is a pastor, writer, author named Alistair Begg. And many years ago, he shared a story in one of his sermons that I've not been able to forget. It lives rent-free in my head because it's about a proud preacher. And he tells a story of um, a large church in Scotland that for many decades had had a long-established veteran pastor, excellent preacher. And one Sunday, the young associate minister was given an opportunity to preach. And Alistair says this guy was perhaps a bit full of himself, came up into the big pulpit, self-assured, self-confident, and the minute he opened his mouth, it all started to fall apart. And he's covered in sweat, he's nervous, he's shaking, he's tripping over himself, and he raced through his points, desperate to get to the end. And uh, let me quote from Alistair now. Eventually, he just kind of crumbled and ended it and gave a benediction. And as the organ began to play, he took his Bible and began to walk down the stairs of the pulpit, sort of slinking out. And an elderly gentleman at the back, observing him go, turned to his friend and said, if that young man had come up the way he went down, he would have gone down the way he came up. Hmm. That's a hard lesson to learn, isn't it? So praise God then. For Jesus. Praise God for the cross that Jesus humbled himself for a people who would never humble themselves. 
that Jesus shined his light upon a people who could not help but diminish it. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it, no matter how hard we try sometimes, and no matter how often we fail. So God, we give you thanks and praise for shining the light of your Son upon us, for the great gift of Jesus, your Son. Father, please send your Holy Spirit upon us afresh, work within us afresh to exalt Christ within us and out of us, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.